this this slogan like, oh, we're going to have a one dose summer. Uh, one but- dose summer. <laughs> Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you on two stations, the Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and Saga 960 AM in the Peel Region, Ontario, Canada. You can go over to our website, consumerchoiceradio.com, where we have all the previous interviews, links, show notes, and beautiful images that I think don't get picked up enough. I'm one half of your hosts, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from uh, the Piedmont region of North Carolina, suffering through the gas shortages, and I'm joined on the mic by my trusty colleague, David Clement, uh, who I hope is not having to do the same up there in uh, Toronto, Ontario. How goes it, David? Uh, yeah, it's, it's going. No, no complaints other than I still can't golf, which is a big problem, but beyond that, I'm interested to hear what this zombie apocalypse type gas scenario is like in the U.S. because I'm following it on Twitter and you're seeing people like fill up those oil drums full of gas and it's like full on hoarding. Yeah, it's not looking good. And I I think there was a a tweet by there's this website called Gas Buddy, which I have used a good amount. Uh, I used that a lot more uh, back in the day when I would, you know, drive around town and it would give you the cheapest prices and the guy who runs this, Patrick Dehan, has been tracking this. And this is related to the, uh, I believe it was the pipeline hack. Uh, we can talk about that later. But basically, because of this, there have been some shortages uh, because of various reasons. But he's tracking it, and he says that 71% of gas stations in the Metro Charlotte, North Carolina area are without gasoline. And if we... Wow. Okay, so... You're going to have to walk our listeners through what's going on because it's been covered a little bit, but I'd love to hear your take on like what has happened and what's caused this like epic shortage. So essentially it all goes back to something called the colonial pipeline. Um, and if we look at where the, the shortages are happening and who are the most impacted, uh, it's generally people in the Southeast Uh, So we have uh, Georgia and Florida and North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. Um, So what the Colonial Pipeline does is it carries gas supplies essentially from Texas uh, all the way up to the north. And it also has um, gasoline and premium gasoline, some home fuel, some jet fuel, diesel fuel, It's able to somehow transport all of these at once. It's a very, very huge pipeline, a huge diagram that you can see online. Essentially, they were the victim of a cyber attack, and it was a couple of hackers, hacker bros out from Eastern Europe. I didn't see exactly where they were from. I don't think it was identified. But essentially, the hacker bros hacked uh, some kind of technological supply of the Colonial Pipeline, and just essentially said in order to fix it, uh, they wanted a particular ransom. And then uh, after they were contacted, the Hacker Collective, 
Uh, they actually came back and said, you know, we actually apologize. We didn't know it would cause this much disruption. We just were looking for cash. And essentially what that has done. Yeah. Well, there's a, so they were polite. They were polite hackers. They were they're very polite. <laughs> you know, these are these are the nice guys uh, that, that, are, that, are, that are really trying to just get they're just trying to get a, a payday like the rest of us. You know, they've they got their stimulus money, but they just need something else. So this is a, a pretty big cyber attack. Um, you know, this is something like close to 50% of all fuel on the East Coast. So this is a big deal in terms of how much fuel. Now, why these shortages are happening has nothing to do with the actual fuel not being there. It has everything to do with many other incentives. We don't have as enough, enough truckers on the road because of various labor regulations that have changed. We just haven't had supplies that have been able to get to people. And then you have the added psychological impact of people hearing that there might be gas shortages. What do they do? They go out to the pump in droves and then do take all of the gas so that there is none left. So it, it's, it's a crazy kind of psychological and economic experiment that many of us have seen. The governor of North Carolina has said, uh, you know, look out for the price gougers. Make sure you let them know it's illegal. It's against the law. And uh, actually, in Virginia, they did issue a state of emergency. Uh, so kind of a big deal what's going on here. I mean, again, the, the pipeline itself, there's a lot of talk about infrastructure these days. But this is a single pipeline, you know, that goes from Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. I mean, this is um, it's a big deal. And where we've had various shutdowns of this pipeline in the past, whether it be because of hurricanes or some kind of leaks you know it hasn't had this much of an impact i just think it was the the perfect uh mixing of labor regulations general shortages in terms of the pandemic and supply chains and then just crazy behavior of people who have been locked up for many months who are now free and want to be able to drive everywhere panic buying gasoline it'll be interesting to see what the political implications of this are because i mean at least my my take on u.s politics in relation to this is that the price of gas is like a metric in which a lot of people evaluate a presidency whether it's accurate or not because i mean i go back to like the obama era and republicans would be like well just look at the price of gas and then the crowd would go nuts and they'd be like oh this is brutal um so I wonder if this is going to come back on Joe Biden in terms of like people linking this like 70s style gas shortage to the Biden administration. I don't know if I'm oversimplifying things, but. Um, well, yeah. the memes are there, so you're not <laughs> wrong. <laughs> the The memes that, uh, you know, hark us back to the 1970s and stagflation and everything else, they are there. Uh, so, yeah, that's. It, what does the average person think? You know, they just, they can hear about this complicated case of this pipeline, about how they changed the labor regulations for long haul truckers who, you know, need to have more mandatory rests, so can't do as many shifts, and there aren't enough drivers. I mean, that's a whole other part of it, too. In the entire oil and gas and transport sector, and this is something Canada knows a lot about, there's a huge shortage of workers. There aren't enough people to drive the trucks. There aren't enough people to, you know, load at the dock. And that just makes it a perfect problem when you have, you know, a huge exogenous event like this. And it, it's a big deal. So what will be the political impact? 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, people are probably going to link it to federal government, what Joe Biden's been doing. I have no doubt. You know, when you hear about huge infrastructure bills and billions of dollars in spending and then all of a sudden gas prices go up, people go out and they panic buy and then they they blame the guy in charge. So I don't doubt I don't doubt that. And, and what's interesting is that we could be on the verge of something similar here in Ontario for different reasons. Um, I don't know if you followed this at all. Line five, which is a pipeline that cuts through Michigan and basically feeds much of Ontario and Quebec in terms of its gas and oil access. Um, the governor of, of, of Michigan, our favorite, Governor Whitmer, uh, it has uh, basically committed to shut, shutting the pipeline down. Um, I don't really understand her justifications because it's obviously the faster and safer way of transporting um, these natural resources. But there is a possibility where there's going to be some major tension in trade relations between Canada and the United States, because if if Governor Whitmer gets her way, that pipeline will be shut off. And now there are already talks of emergency measures in terms of truckers and, and tankers and all of this stuff to try and ensure that there isn't just some epic shortage of, of gas. Um, so, I mean, I hope that we don't get there, but who knows? I mean, Governor Whitmer seems to be adding to her resume of nonsense uh, at a pretty remarkable rate here. Um, well, let's let's not let's not even um, let's not give a pass to Canadians. I mean, this whole debate about pipelines and you know rail oh, yeah. and transport. I mean, it's not as if Canada is you know lacking in oil and uh, you know fossil fuels. There's just been this internal political struggle about how to transport it, how to get it out, how to get it across yeah. the provinces. I mean, that's not really going to be resolved no, either. No, is and it, it kind of highlights the ridiculousness of all the opposition domestically. It's like, well, I mean, we maybe it would be a good idea. And I mean, this is especially true for Quebec. Um, maybe it would be a, a good idea to have a properly functioning pipeline network that cuts through Ontario and Quebec to try and ensure that some of this doesn't happen. Um, but instead, here we are, we're relying on something that cuts through the United States and bam, all it takes is one irrational governor and we're on the verge of, uh, on the verge of our own zombie apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> Lord. Well, you know, that's, that's the crazy thing is that's what happens when the NIMBYs get in charge and, uh, when the NIMBYs don't want a pipeline going through any of the territory, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to import oil from the Middle East? Um, you know, David, speaking of the Middle East, <laughs> Yeah. Don't worry, I'm not going there. I think there's 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 a there's a lot happening and there's a lot to read and and uh, this is a it's an interesting thing about being back on Eastern mm -hmm. Standard Time. Uh just the amount of news that hits me and I don't have as much time to prepare and read, you know, early in the morning where I get a jump on you and I can pepper you with uh, 18 yeah. links in the morning. No, Can't do that as no. much nowadays. I think you're you're up earlier yeah, than me, we, so I can't really Yeah, we do won't that weigh anymore. into what's going on currently. Um in Israel and Israel-Palestine and the conflict there. This, that just seems like one of those moments where it is probably best to collect more information before saying something stupid, which seems to be the ongoing trend for pretty much everybody on Twitter right now. So we are going to um, take a pass on, on that debate. Um, but yeah, it's pretty scary when you when you look at what's happening. And uh, yeah, that's all I have. That's all I, all I have to say about that. <laughs> 
And I don't, I don't, um, this is, it's unrelated, but somewhat related, you know, whether it be something in the Middle East or the gas shortages that we talked about, I tell you, there's something that wires your brain differently when you watch just five minutes of cable television, uh, cable news oh, yeah. specifically. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, it is. I, I know you're, you're a bit more familiar and tapped in and you got the TV and it's available, but man, I'm not used to this. I'm used to watching YouTube clips of things on CNN or Fox. I, I it's just insane that these people continue to carry on, and I don't understand how David Clement, analyst, is not up there at CNN or myself, or just smarter, more intelligent people who aren't up there just stoking flames of hatred and ignorance and I don't know what. It, I can understand, and I see my neighbors uh, here in North Carolina. You know, I can see a bit into their windows. So I know the guy on the right's watching Fox, the guy on the left's watching MSNBC, and they live in totally different realities. Oh, yeah. Yeah, two separate worlds. I remember the last time I was in D.C., sitting in my hotel room, and I flipped on CNN, and they were in the middle of a segment talking about believe what was just said on Fox News. And then I, I'm like, oh, what's going on here? So I flip over to Fox to see what's going on. And they're doing a segment about Anderson Cooper. And can you believe what he said? And it's like, wait a second. What is like, this is just outrage. This is outrage mania on, on cable news. Um, I don't really think that that provides too much value <laughs> in terms of actually educating the population on what the notable events of the day are. But yeah, it um, it yeah. certainly can can take a toll on you. And I mean, we obviously see the the implications of it when you look at political discourse in the U.S. being so fractured. Um, it's like you said, people just live in separate worlds. And and if you were to ask those two hypothetical neighbors, you'd essentially probably come up with two completely different versions of of where the country is at. And that's probably not a the good creator thing. of Dilbert, uh, Scott Adams. Uh, he's made some fame as a kind of, I don't know what you call it, sort of a pro-Trump or a understanding Trump pundit. Uh, but he had a very good notion in one of his books. And I think it applies to uh, a circumstance I'd like to talk about. Two movies, one screen. We're all looking at one screen, but we're seeing two different movies depending on you know the inputs that we have. Uh, so I'm going to have a clip on yeah, I'm going to have a clip there. A good analogy. I'll be able to analyze that because there's a couple of these going on. You have one event and you have two vastly, just vast different interpretations of what's happening. There's going to be a lot to come here on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you guys for tuning in here on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 1067 FM. Again, go to our website. Uh, we'll have more of the show notes. Uh, look at our past interviews. We've got some great guests coming up next week. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Continue tuning in, and we'll be right back after this. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel Region, Ontario, and the Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, Yael, just before the break, you were talking about how uh, media viewership in the U.S. is so uh, polarized. Now, Americans essentially are all watching the same movie, but seeing it on or watching the same screen, but seeing two different movies. Or is it watching the same movie, but on two different screens? Um, 
<laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's one screen, two different. Okay, movies. okay. And you mentioned you have a clip of uh, Scott Adams explaining this. Let's we should we should probably tee that up. Oh, I, I don't have a clip of Scott Adams. I have an example. Ooh, oh, okay, yeah. Let's see of, that of this phenomenon. I, yeah, I don't think it bears more explanation. It, it's pretty simple. We saw it throughout the kind of Trump era. You know, there was some news related to Trump. If you were listening to the pro-Trump media, whatever it is, you saw that whatever Trump did as heroic or great. If you were watching the uh, resistance media hashtag, that uh, was the worst thing ever, uh, not presidential, probably illegal, you know, all the rest. So we have another example, and th- this happens a lot in media. And there was one yesterday. Unfortunately, Twitter brings out a lot of this. Uh, but this is a clip from the Senate hearing of Dr. Fauci, uh, who's the sort of main American uh, pandemic director, if we can call him that. He's the head of the NIH, uh, National Institutes of Health, and he's uh, going in a tête-à-tête with Dr. Rand Paul. And I'm sure you saw some analysis of this. You saw some uh, some clicks back and forth. I think it's really interesting, and we have to give a tad bit of background because it's a bit complex. So this has to do with the origin of the Carol Baskins COVID virus that you know we've talked about and we talked about in the very early episodes of Consumer Choice Radio. It was something that we focused on because we had been in Davos and hearing more about what was happening in China and what was happening in Wuhan, and that's kind of where it all started. And we're now many, many months later, over a year later, and we still don't have 100% of the information about where the virus came from. Did it originate at the wet market? Was it in the lab? Was it from a bat cave? Uh, We don't necessarily have all the information. The Chinese Communist Party has been uh, very reluctant to share more information. They've stymied many of the investigators from the World Health Organization and similar uh, authorities. And that's what this exchange is about. It's between Rand Paul, who's in the Senate uh, committee, And he's questioning Fauci on this and then also their role, the NIH's role, in perhaps funding some of the research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, where some of this is claimed to have happened. So let's uh, see if we can play this clip here. Dr. Fauci, do you still support funding of the NIH funding of the lab in Wuhan? Senator Paul, with all due respect, you are entirely and completely incorrect that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Do they fund Dr. Barrick? We do not fund... Do you fund gain, Dr. Barrick's gain-of-function research? D- Dr. Barrett does not doing gain-of-function research, and if it is, it's according to the guidelines, and it is being conducted in North Carolina... Oh, boy, he, he called me out. All right, so just a bit of context. When they say gain-of-function research, now I looked in, in a, <laughs> I spent probably two hours reading this yesterday. Gain-of-function research talks about when you take something that is not uh, particularly harmful to humans, you know, something that is an animal-to-animal virus, you know, something that impacts rats and cats but would not uh, not impact humans, and you essentially supercharge it so that it can become harmful to humans. So it's it's whatever virus you had, you've gained, you've added some kind of function to that. 
And that's what he's, he's saying is, have you funded gain-of-function research? And Fauci is going back and saying, no, we haven't. We fund the research of this particular individual who is in North Carolina uh, up the road in Chapel Hill. So we'll continue on. You don't think inserting a bat virus spike protein that he got from the Wuhan Institute into the SARS virus is gain of function? That is not the minority because at least 200 scientists have signed a statement from the Cambridge Working Group saying that it is gain of function. Well, it is not. And if you look at the grant and you look at the progress reports, it is not gain of function, despite the fact that people tweet that. So do you still support it? sending money to the Wuhan Virology Institute? We do not send money now to the to Wuhan uh, Virology Institute. support sending money? We did, under your tutelage. We were sending it through EcoHealth. It was a sub-agency right. and a sub-grant. Do you support that the money from NIH that was going to the Wuhan Institute? Let me explain to you why that was done. The SARS-CoV-1 originated in bats in China. It would have been irresponsible of us if we did not investigate the bat viruses and the serology to see who might have been or, infected Or perhaps it would be irresponsible China. to send it to the Chinese government that we may not be able to trust with this uh, knowledge and with this uh, incredibly dangerous viruses. Government scientists like yourself who favor gain-of-function research... I don't favor gain-of-function research in China. You are saying things that are not correct. Government defenders of of gain-of-function, such as yourself, say that COVID-19 mutations were random and not designed by man. But interestingly, the technique that Dr. Barrick developed forces mutations by serial passage through cell culture that the mutations appear to be natural. In fact, Dr. Barrick named the technique the noceum technique because the mutations appear naturally. Nicholas Baker in the New York Magazine said, nobody would know if the virus had been fabricated in a laboratory or grown in nature. Government authorities in the U.S., including yourself, unequivocally deny that COVID-19 could have escaped a lab. But even Dr. Xi in Wuhan wasn't so sure. According to Nicholas Baker, Dr. Xi wondered, could this new virus have come from her own laboratory? She checked her records frantically and found no matches. That really took a load off my mind, she said. I had not slept for days. The director of the gain-of-function research in Wuhan couldn't sleep because she was terrified that it might be in her lab. Dr. Barrick, an advocate of -of gain-of-function research, admits the main problem that the Institute of Virology has is the outbreak occurred in close proximity. What are the odds? Barrick responded, could you rule out a laboratory escape? The answer in this case is probably not. Will you, in front of this group, categorically say that the COVID-19 could not have occurred through serial passage in a laboratory? I do not have any accounting of what the Chinese may have done, and I'm fully in favor of any further investigation of what went on in China. However, I will repeat again, the NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. All right, so we'll we'll pause it there. There's a lot to that happened, but... Just for media reaction, it was two yeah. sides. It was either Rand Paul is a hero, look at him calling out Fauci, or Fauci slams Rand <laughs> Paul on his idiotic comments. 
So, David, I don't know if you had heard the clip before. What is your initial reaction? I mean, my, my main reaction is I'm obviously not uh, I'm not even remotely in the realm of really being able to weigh in on what my thoughts are. But I do know that the investigation that was supposed to be done, I mean, even as reported by the Wall Street Journal, was pretty much bogus because they didn't give the, the scientists from the WHO access enough to be able to determine a yes or no answer on that question. And so it's, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I mean, it did seem weird because it was like Dr. Fauci was saying unequivocally no, and then got backed into a corner and said, well, we did do this because, and so, yeah, very unclear to me, but I'm interested to see um, how different news agencies reported on that. Yeah, and it all comes down to semantics, and, and that's why this gain-of-function research, is it's convoluted because most people won't know what that means, and it is a very particular thing. And in this way, there are a number of news outlets that are actually poking holes in what Fauci is saying. He's saying that the NIH did not fund, you know, whatever, the <sighs> function research. The whole point is that there was money that went from the NIH to this organization called EcoHealth, uh, which is a kind of nonprofit scientific uh, research institute. And that money went directly to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to study coronaviruses. That's it. That's the main thing. Yeah. But Fauci says, well, we do not directly fund, you know, gain of function research, which is technically true in that that's yeah, not the what they... directly. <laughs> yes. And, and that's yeah. why Fauci is, if anything, he's a good politician. And um, and that's why it is. It's one movie, two screens. Uh, we're seeing completely different reactions to this. And it all stems from the lab leak hypothesis. Again, it is a hypothesis, the idea that the coronavirus, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, whatever, uh, was actually created in the lab, not for nefarious purposes, but for research purposes. And something happened to where it leaked out, an employee got it or left, or we don't really know. Uh, one thing I'll put in the show notes is an article by Nicholas Wade. He's a former New York Times science reporter. Uh, he's actually been at the Science and Nature magazines for many years. He wrote a very, very, very long medium post about this. And what I find most problematic is that there are organizations of scientists who came out in the first two or three months of the pandemic and said, you know, lab leak, impossible. No way. This is from the, the wet market. You know, that's what we know. And what Wade kind of dissects is that, well, this is actually not how you do science because all they did is they circulated a letter from all these scientists who had no idea about anything. They're all just like, you know, environmentalist or, you know, some guy who works at some lab in Nevada. And mm -hmm. that was put together as proof. And that was used in the media as proof that the lab leak hypothesis could not be true. But we are seeing more mainstream articles now in the Washington Post. Wall Street Journal had a very good editorial on that. So yeah, very long and convoluted way to just say that uh, people are going to process information differently. And if you're on one side, you see this as Rand Paul slamming Fauci. And on the other, it's uh, Fauci dispels the lies of Rand Paul. Yeah, I mean, they seem to have quite a rivalry now. That's not the first time they've exchanged um, some coarse words for each other. Um It'd be interesting to see how that develops. I mean, again, at the end of the day, this isn't like some, 
this isn't some conspiracy theory like, oh, the Chinese did this on purpose or blah, blah, blah. It's really just trying to get to the root of how this develops. I mean, for the purpose of better understanding where it goes. And the funny thing is, is I think headlines broke this week uh, in Canada in the Globe and Mail that CSIS was at, which is Canada's uh, top security agency, was actually revoking the clearances of of um, some scientists operating in Canada who had affiliations with some of those Chinese uh, organizations uh, for the purposes of national security. So it's not like this is just some crazy out of the blue uh, idea. Uh, it's something that national security agencies are actively looking at and actually revoking people's clearance because of it so it's um it, it'll be interesting to see how this how this develops uh i mean we'll, we'll certainly keep on top of it and um you know just related to this there's a <clears throat> there's a new substack out there lessons from the crisis.substack.com uh, for any of you who are into media analysis and i've been following what many uh, public health experts have been saying you would know that in many circumstances, they might have been wrong early on because they didn't have the information. And we kind of forget that. And uh, there's a couple of, of posts here on this Substack, uh, a lot about the travel restrictions and what many of the public health experts said about travel restrictions early on. Uh, they actually said they're not helpful. They said they're actually terrible. They don't work. Um, and much the same for masks. And you do see a lot of the uh, media talking about mass and how it, it played out. Uh, we'll go ahead and link to that in the show notes. Uh, plenty of more to come here on Consumer Choice Radio. What do you guys think? Write to us, hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. We'll get into it more. Uh, stick here. We'll be right back after this. And we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 1067 FM. David, we uh, we went pretty deep there in the last couple segments, talking a lot about media analysis, uh, the origins of the coronavirus, a lot about uh, the gas shortages along the east coast of the United States. Uh, I want to get into a particularly Canadian topic in a bit, but very first, uh, there was a... <laughs> A great little post uh, by Mark Zuckerberg uh, that came on the Facebooks, uh, wherein he revealed that uh, he's got a couple of goats uh, on his property, and their <laughs> names are Max and Bitcoin. And there's speculation that uh, at the next board meeting or report or whatever it is of Facebook, uh, the company, it will be revealed that Facebook has been piling up their reserve of Bitcoin. And uh, this was a kind of signal from Mark Zuckerberg. He's trying to play a little Elon Musk here, you know, trying yeah. to play the market a bit. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that something that you see happening? Do you see something uh, in the, the goat, uh, the goat post? Well, I think it's one of those things where the more these large multinational companies like Tesla or Facebook kind of open themselves to, to cryptocurrencies, whether it be Bitcoin or others, um, you're going to start to see the market move that way pretty significantly. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if there would be a function in the future where, where Facebook would accept payment in Bitcoin, like Tesla. 
Um, but it is certainly interesting and it adds a ton of legitimacy to the cryptocurrency world. And if we remember not more than a year ago, uh, Facebook had debuted this new idea of a, another currency called Libra. It was the Libra project. Uh, it would have been a basket of various currencies uh, that would have been kind of led by this steering committee of which uh, Facebook would only be a small part, but you also had uh, various companies. And that was quickly shot down by many uh, regulators, uh, the House Finance Committee in the United States, Maxine Waters and the like, all came out against it. And uh, essentially, I think Facebook backed down, and they, they might still have these plans. Uh, but what's interesting is one goat is named Bitcoin and the other is Max. If you follow the Bitcoin debate, uh, that could mean that Mark Zuckerberg is a Bitcoin maximalist, meaning that uh, all the other altcoins are just window dressing. Bitcoin is the way we go in. Um, not financial advice at all, but I did see a number of tweets saying, hey, look, if, if the Zuck machine is about to you know, hit the gas pedal on Bitcoin, uh, yeah, hop on the bus. <laughs> uh, yeah, it'll send, it'll send a very clear signal um, to anyone who's interested or anyone who's already been in in, uh, in in the crypto space. So we'll have to see where that goes. That's true. And, and there'll be more there. We've done a lot of stuff on cryptocurrencies, things like Bitcoin. So go to our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. Uh, we have plenty there. Uh, you can see some of our articles where we've men mentioned this and researched it. So David, I want to pivot to a very important topic, uh, something that is, is currently churning its way through parliament up there in Canada. And I've seen some commentary as well in the United States uh, J.J. McClugla, I don't know his name, in uh, Washington Post has talked about this. Yeah. We're talking about Bill C-10. And I know on Saga, if you're listening here, you, you have heard some commentary and people have been talking about it. An act to amend the Broadcasting Act and to make consequential amendments to other acts. So, David, just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, Mexican streaming quotas um, is this something that's similar? What is C10 all about, and why are people in a in a huff? Well, the big thing is that it would essentially empower the CRTC to go after tech companies. That's the Canadian uh, sort of FCC. Yeah, uh, to go after tech companies to enforce things like Canadian content. But in its original draft, it went so far as to go after users. Um, so like, let's say you had a popular YouTube page and you happen to be Canadian. In theory, the CRTC could ding you for not having enough Canadian content or whatever the restrictions are, or requiring you to contribute to their funds, which go to produce other aspects of in air quotes, Canadian culture, which I really have a hard time putting my finger down as to what that is in, in the context of media. Um, so it, it was a huge intrusion into the online space um, that Canadians uh, work in and, 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 or, or, or entertain themselves in. And it went so far as to applying, for, applying to content that could be in theory, viewed by Canadians. So obviously the internet is a fairly global place. Um, so it just seemed like an incredible overreach. And then you, it was compounded by the fact that our heritage minister is such a bumbling idiot that whenever asked about it, he just couldn't articulate why they would do certain things, why there were provisions included and then removed. And so luckily the bill 
is now in some additional process of review, essentially to ensure that it doesn't violate the charter rights of, of Canadians in terms of their free speech and things like that. I hope the bill just dies. I mean, I would argue that we really don't even need a CRTC. Um, I would probably be on the other end of this conversation that there really shouldn't be any government involvement in terms of enforcing content beyond obviously like legality. Um, so ensuring that it's legal content, it's not perpetuating crimes or things like that, but um, yeah, just an absolute dumpster fire uh, in terms of this, this bill and, and the minister responsible for it. And I'm hard pressed to see like if I'm in Trudeau's office and I look at some of the interviews that he's done, I go, okay, maybe it's time we uh, we reshuffle the deck here and we get somebody else in on this file because he is about as bad as it gets. Yeah, this is um, originally introduced in November 2020, Bill C-10, uh, Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen uh, Gulbeau, I believe his name is uh, pronounced in French, uh, also called the streaming tax at times. But yeah, as you mentioned, there's all kinds of stuff in here. You know, every single country now, every liberal democracy sees uh, technology companies, the Internet, and they're all trying to put their own remedies forth to either get additional funds or money or get something in, in terms of, uh, you know, broader regulatory control. It, it's kind of scary. You know, I, I have seen some uh, some bombastic uh, sort of response to this, but I, I think it, it's probably do because uh, there are a lot of implications for free speech and free expression. Um, it seems, yeah, pretty uh, pretty troublesome, you know. And I I would I would hope that this is something that would not be supported broadly um, across the country. We did see in the Quebec National Assembly it was voted on in sort of a measure of support unanimously, uh, obviously because of the French language culture. Uh, but these content quotas, you know, they, they won't go away. It's something that uh, people feel very strongly about, which, again, David, considering I probably watch more Canadian television than you do, uh, yeah, uh, there's something going on there. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, it was funny because the minister then tweeted essentially saying that the only people who oppose this are essentially like free market fundamentalists and absolutists and conspiracy theorists or some garbage and unanimously i mean i think almost all of the editorial boards for the major papers have been like well no this isn't quite right the canada research chair for e-commerce and and um that kind of realm which is essentially the leading academic in the space has been a, a vocal critic from the beginning so I mean, he's he's calling he's calling a a a federally funded um, research chair a free market fundamentalist, which is I mean incredibly hilarious and ironic. Um, it's something that for the most part there are very few people who actually support taking the bill that far because most people just realize it's ridiculous. And I mean, this is the conversation that you and I have when we talk with ordinary Canadians. Is a lot of people think that these protections for Canadian culture, when you actually get into the brass tacks of it, are like, ah, oh, well, I kind of like Netflix as it is. Let's leave that alone. Or I don't need the government telling me that I have to view a certain percentage of Canadian YouTube content. Like it kind of runs against the entire model of why people enjoy these things. Yeah, and if you have a YouTube channel and you happen to be in Hamilton, Ontario, 
and all you do is commentary on the British crown and, uh, you know, the palace intrigue, you know, that's not Canadian content necessarily. So does that mean that you would yeah, be dinged? <laughs> yeah, it's like, or if you're a makeup artist and you have a very popular makeup artist YouTube channel where you do those tutorials, um, I did a little bit of investigation on that. They're like incredibly popular. We're talking millions and millions of viewers. Oh, yeah. These people make great money. And to think that the CRTC could try and insert itself and be like, you have to help fund Canadian culture. And it's like, one, these people, if they're Canadian, are Canadian. So they've created this content without any government involvement at all. And two, it's like, how do you enforce that? I mean, it, it brings me back to, this is years ago when the CRTC attempted to go after um, an adult video company because they didn't have enough Canadian content. And uh, I'll let your, your imagination run wild on what would or wouldn't qualify as Canadian content in the porn industry. But it's just like, why do we even do this? I mean, does anybody really care and say like, no, I need the government to force me to watch 30% Canadian content or listen to 30% Canadian music. It's like, leave me alone. I'll make my own Spotify playlist and, and bugger off. It's the same when it comes to the case in Mexico that we discussed with streaming and these content quotas, you know, these government measures, they're going to benefit some people. Uh, some people, usually legacy media companies that are able to adhere to this uh, pretty easily, more innovative startups that do media probably won't be able to. And yeah, what is the constituency for this? You know, there's plenty of Canadian culture, so-called, that people watch on their own, not because the government, uh, you know, pays them to or because the people are forced to, and people enjoy it, you know, and there's a a very rich culture where people are able to engage in this and get that information in media. And it just seems as if this is, is much too far uh, down the line. And uh, hopefully this doesn't provide a model for other countries too. And that's something that we're always worried about at uh, Consumer Choice Radio and the Consumer Choice Center is this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, this might happen in passing Canada, but you can, you can find, you know, similar inklings of this in Spain or in Germany, probably in the United Kingdom, uh, I don't know if it would come to that in the United States just because it is more of an in Probably entertainment not. and media powerhouse and the First Amendment. Yeah. But yeah, it's this kind of stuff that, and, and I think you've written a lot about this, David, is whatever the policy might be, the negative externalities from that policy are due to be even worse than the original problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and then there's the obvious question of timing, like, is this really what the government should be prioritized on right now? I mean, like the Trudeau government's just come out with this this slogan, like, oh, we're going to have a one-dose summer. Uh, one-dose like, summer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first off, that 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 catchphrase or slogan is, I don't think, it's a bit of a self-own when it's like, well, the U.S. is having a two-dose summer, and so is the UK, and they're opening up, and a one-dose summer is going to make some difference, but like, I can't even golf, so it's really, it's not it's not that That's good. That's what it's really uh, all about, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Get David Clement <laughs> all, on the links. <laughs> yes, please and thank you. Um, but it's like, we're in the middle of the largest public health crisis in a hundred years um, with one of the largest, most important medical rollouts in the last hundred years. And 
Mr. Gubo wants to tell YouTubers what to do. It's like here's a, on, here's an like, interesting question, Davey, because we we discussed protests uh, early on in our show, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. And, you know, we asked whether we would participate at these mask rallies very early on. Would you be willing to partake in a golf protest? And what would that look like? Um, I, w I, I don't know. Maybe. I, I, some people did this uh, towards London. Um, but the second time they did it, they all got fined. Uh, and it was a pretty hefty fine. Um but I think it's important to hear. I'm not just griping about golf because I like golf. The WHO's own numbers show that there are no instances recorded where transmission of the virus has come from an outdoor activity. The only ones they could find were from a construction site in Singapore, which didn't count because it was a workplace setting. Well, um, talk so about we really, the hole in one. <laughs> Yeah, well, David, uh, just what, a, what a great program. I uh, hope you guys continue listening in to Consumer Choice Radio, consumerchoiceradio.com. Uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, talk to you soon. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, -S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
through COVID-19. Hallelujah.